So if you turn your Bibles to Psalm 91, that was our psalm reading for this morning. And these are Psalm 90 we looked at uh, at the beginning of the year. Um, it was our reading. Um, Psalm 90 is a wonderful psalm saying that God has been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Wonderful psalm reflecting on the brevity of life and the preservation of God. Psalm 91, however, is, is unique. It, it really is. It is perhaps the most um, beloved psalm in relation to the safety of God's people, and rightly so. It has been memorized, it has been prayed, it has been recited, it has been sung by, by countless believers in Jesus Christ. And it is a gift to us from God. Uh, and tonight I look forward to uh, meditating on it and looking at it with you for a few moments. We read it this morning, Dave read it, and uh, we're going to read it again. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Version Again, which uh, just translates the, the Hebrew for what it is, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. And uh, trust that you can follow along in your translation. Psalm 91. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the destructive pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will take refuge. For his truth is a large shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day, of pestilence that moves in darkness or of destruction that devastates at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made Yahweh my refuge, the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil will befall you and no plague will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the fierce lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will protect him. I will set him securely on high, because he has known my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in his distress. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation. Amen. Amen. Let's pause and pray. Our God, who is our shelter, we come tonight and ask your blessing on the reading of your word. I pray, especially with so many younger people here tonight, um, I pray that perhaps in your grace and kindness, that you be pleased by your spirit to give us understanding and to impress these truths upon our minds and our hearts so that your word will serve those gathered here for many years to come until Christ comes. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. 
Well, what I want to do tonight is I want to, first, I want to look at the, um, uh, some observations about the outline of the passage, and I want to raise some questions about it. I want to propose to you uh, what I would suggest is uh, the answer to our questions, and then I hope in closing to comfort you and encourage you with these wonderful, timeless truths. First of all, I want you to notice that in verse 1, there's an absolute statement. Unqualified. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. It's a truism. It's a summary statement of the entire psalm. He who abides in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. These are um, beautiful names for God, El Elyon, Most High, uh, Shaddai, Almighty. Um, and it's a summary statement, a declaration, a, a, a truth that we can bank our lives on, that if we are trusting in God, if we are making God our refuge by trusting in Christ, that when we do so, we have God, the Most High God, as our shelter and as our shadow. Um, awesome imagery, uh, the shelter not being some kind of little hut, but a protection from the storm. I don't know about you, but when I saw that snow squall come through this afternoon, I was quite glad that I was inside. Uh, it was howling like the Arctic. I've never been to the Arctic, but I imagine that's what it would look like for a few minutes. I was thankful I was inside a shelter. And uh, if you've ever been in a very hot, hard for us to think of a very hot place right now, but if you've ever been in a very hot place, uh, I know there's a few who went a few years ago and, and hiked in the Grand Canyon in, in the heat. Uh, we won't mention any names, but uh, I, I hear it was quite hot. And uh, those who did that, I expect, were very glad for when they happened to be in a shadow of a great rock. Uh, refuge from the fierce and brutal sun. So there's this, the statement, verse 1. It's really the summary of the entire psalm. Then I want you to notice, after that declaration, there's a person speaking. It's the author of the psalm. We don't know exactly who it is. Some ancient uh, records suggest David, but we don't know. But it is the author of the psalm, whether it be David or Moses, whomever. It is a God-fearing, God-trusting individual who confesses the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, as his God. He is the God of this man, and, and this is the confession of every believer. But notice that this person says in verse 2, I will say to Yahweh, my refuge and fortress. But then in verse 3, there's another individual, a person introduced. For it is he who delivers you. So there's, a, there's the author of the psalm the, representing the godly person, who, is, who confesses, this is their confession, that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is my refuge, is my fortress, is my God. And then that person says to another person or persons, for it is that God who delivers you, whomever that other person is, from the snare of the trapper. And I want you to, trapper, and I want you to notice in verses 3 all the way down through verse 13, the psalmist here is talking about that other person, using the second person pronoun, you. For it is God who delivers, verse 3, you. It, he will, verse 4, cover you, and under his wings you will take refuge. Uh, verse 5, you will not be afraid of terror, and so on. I mean, how many, I didn't count, but you can count perhaps. 
verses 3 through 13 have to do with this you, and I don't mean a bush, uh, this person. So there's verse 2, the psalmist confesses this God is going to deal in certain ways towards this person or persons. He's going to be their protection. And then I want you to notice, thirdly, in verses, by way of just introduction, verses 14 to 16, that now the psalmist isn't the one speaking, it's God. God is speaking because he, whoever that is, has loved me, says God. I will protect him. God's speaking to this individual, this person. I will set him securely on high because he's known my name. He will call upon me and so forth. So I want you to notice there's, there's a declaration in verse 1. There's a confession in verse 2. And then through verses 3 through 13, there's a serious series of, I'll call them prophecies, proclamations of how God will act towards this person, towards this uh, individual in verses 3 through 13. And then in verses 4 through 16, God is speaking, presumably concerning this same person, certain unique realities. So just want you to notice the outline there. There's a, there's a, some, the grammar matters. You do need to pay attention to your eyes and your U's. Um, to help you read your Bible and your Psalms. Now, I want, to, I want to look with you at some of the problems that this psalm presents. It's, it's a beautiful psalm. And hear me out at the beginning. I do not want to do anything to undermine your confession of this psalm. I want you, uh, by God's grace, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you confessing this psalm and, and owning every single line. Um, because you can. However, there are some interesting challenges, aren't there? If there's an honest reading of this psalm, um, certainly verse 4 is, is unqualified. He will cover you with his pinions. I'll come back to that. But, but verse 3, God is the one, the psalmist says, who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from destructive pestilence. Verse 6 of Hill, you'll not be afraid of pestilence that moves in darkness. Have there been any Christians who have been subjected to plagues over the centuries? Do you know any godly believers who become very sick? We know, uh, some of us, very personal, some of you know that uh, though COVID was grossly overstated by our government and they tried to instill fear, nonetheless, some of us had it and know it was, it was quite a nasty pestilence and some here know some who died of that pestilence. What do you do with the missionary stories of those missionaries who died of some form of plague? How do you answer that? Have there been any... Christian soldiers throughout the millennia who have been fighting in a war, let's say World War I, and they're in the trenches, and uh, there were a lot of God-fearing Christian young men from England and elsewhere in those trenches, and I'm not doubting that they were praying Psalm 91, and yet they not only saw a thousand fall at their right side, 
they saw tens of thousands fall on their right and their left. And many, many, many God-fearing, Christ-trusting men were among them. What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that there's Christians who die in war, who pray this prayer, and they fall? Um, Verse 10 is quite without reservation. No evil will befall you. Wow. No plague will come near your tent. Now, we can certainly understand this in the sense, and, and we will, I will argue this, that this psalm is teaching that Christ's people, that God's people are safe, and that we are safe on this beautiful picture. Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will take refuge. His truth is a large shield and bulwark. What, a, what an awesome image of the Most High God, the Most High God, likening himself in his word, wanting us to know that his, his protection of us, his tender attention, is like a, 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 an eagle or a hawk that watches over its young ones and protects them under, under wings. That's just an awesome, awesome picture. And it is absolutely true that what we learn from this psalm is that there is nothing that comes into a believer's life but that passes through the wings of our God, as it were. And that's a wonderful comfort, and we're going to come back to that at the close. It's, it's, I can't die until that day comes until God has appointed for me to die, and that's your, that's your comfort too. Um, there's a reality in my life, and, and my family knows this. Um, when Carissa, on our wedding day uh, ceremony, vowed in sickness and in health, she had no idea how much that guy that was staying across from her would be sick. I seemed rather like a rather young, athletic, healthy man with hair. And, uh, but I, I certainly have not been sick as most, but there's a reality. Even recently, I was talking to Ruthie, my eldest daughter, and it, it pained my heart when she said, Dad, I said it matter-of-factly, you were sick my whole high school. And it's true. I, I had uh, awful, awful stomach pain. Um, and if you have that kind of pain, I, I am so sorry. I haven't had it for years. I'm so thankful. Uh, I went from that to, to Lyme disease and Babesia. And that's a parasite that's in your blood cells. And uh, I knew terror in the night. Never knew it since, up to that time and never known it since. Uh, Brother Ed, you're here tonight. You suffered with the same thing, Lyme disease. And after God had just brought me through, I remember providentially, I was going to see my, bro- my, good, my roommate in college, your, your uh, nephew, Jake Martinez, and he told me that you were sick with Lyme disease. And I went over, and I don't remember you remember this day, but that day you were very sick, and uh, we sat down together, but I asked you, and I asked you how you were doing, and you said to me, terrors, terrors. That's what you said to me, terrors. 
Now, do you think Ed gets afraid of much? I don't think so either. I knew exactly what he was dealing with. There was a, there was a physical, that disease messed with your mind, didn't it? It messed with mind. This man trusts in God. So what do you do with that? We could add to that many times over. The reality is, among even a group this size, and with many young people here tonight, some of you are, are going to get sick. Just, it's, you are. You are. Some of you with uh, some terrible different things, some of some mundane things. Some of you are going to be exposed to some very frightening things in your life. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that if you follow God, that your life will be free of those things. That's not what this psalm is saying. But if you read it straightforward in this way, do you understand that it, it could, misunderstood, lead to some real bitterness in a believer's life? Wait a minute, I, I thought God, Psalm 91, I, I'm following you, maybe not perfectly, but I'm trusting in you. I've made you my refuge, and I've known terrors in the night. I've known sickness in my life, for much of my life, maybe, for some of you. I, I, seems like evil's befallen me. How do we understand this? Well, again, many commentators, in fact, most apparently, as I was, I was just checking this afternoon, most qualify this by, again, the, and this, is, this may be what God intended. Um, I, I'm going to, in just a moment, argue for a, a, an understanding of the text that I hope makes sense and that is fitting and appropriate and true. But it's... I, I struggle with a little bit with that because the psalm is strong. I mean, it's not a lot of qualifications to it. And if we start kind of qualifying it away, well, yes, the psalm says that we won't experience these things, but we know that they do, and, and they, but they come through our Father's providential hands. Oh, okay. But it's so strong. It's so unqualified. So how do we understand this? I think there's help to us if you turn with me for a moment, keep your bulletin or your finger in Psalm 91. I think there's help for us in Matthew 4. In Matthew chapter 4, where we find our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, assailed by the serpent. And in Matthew 4, the serpent um, attacks Jesus after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, and he is hungry. He is in the wilderness. He is exposed. Um, and the, the devil actually attacks him in three instances of calling God's word into question. Essentially, the devil is saying to Jesus, the Messiah, God's word, Deuteronomy 8, Psalm 91, and then uh, Psalm 2, God, or rather Satan, is testing, he's calling God's faithfulness and trustworthiness into doubt by quoting and, and dealing with Jesus on three different biblical texts, and one of them at the heart of Matthew 4, and the temptation of Christ in the wilderness is Psalm 91. 
And it's very interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, which we have um, in, uh, given to us uh, by the Holy Spirit in the common language of that day, Greek, it's interesting that Matthew, the apostle, the Holy Spirit ultimately, has both the devil and Jesus, who was a man. Jesus is quoting, this will encourage you, by the way, I hope. He's quoting from the most popular translation of his day, which was the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew. That ought to encourage you. Um, Greek is as different from Hebrew as English is from Hebrew. And yet Jesus had enough confidence in, the, in this translation of the original Hebrew in the psalm into Greek that Jesus himself, the Son of God, quoted it to the devil as being the very word of God. Amen. God has written. That ought to be very encouraging to you. So, but what's interesting is that, that, the, that Satan knows that Jesus knows the, the Septuagint. Jesus doubtless knew the Hebrew as well. Not just because he's the son of God, but in that time, uh, people living in that area, they knew multiple languages. It was a crossroads of the world there in Israel. And, and it's no mistake that the devil is attacking Jesus. And look with me at verse, um, at verse uh, 6. The devil... I'm sorry, verse 5. The devil took him into the holy city, had him, Jesus, stand on the pinnacle. In the Greek there, by the way, it's wing. The wing of the temple. That was the highest point, a little edge. He took him to the wing of the temple and said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. And then the devil quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Wow. I want to suggest to you, and, and I, I, this is, I want to say this, that um, you, you need to be good Bereans and over time consider this. But I want to suggest to you that the devil is right in only one sense. <laughs> I think the devil had a messianic understanding of Psalm 91. I think when the devil, and by the way, the devil knows the Bible better than any of us. Um, he's been around a while and he's, he's read it and he's, he's quite intelligent. And I think he understood Psalm 91 to be a general promise to God's people, which it is. But I think the devil understood Psalm 91 that, that you in verses 3 through 13 to be the Messiah. That God was making specific promises that this figure promised in the line of David, who God had promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, that to, to Eve, that the serpent would nip this one on the heel, but that this descendant of Eve would crush the serpent's head. Amen. I think the serpent understood that that was the figure, this Messiah, this promised one, whom the psalmist is addressing in Psalm 91. Just go back, keep your finger in Matthew 4. Just think, look at how this makes sense. Uh, it is true, generally, that God protects all his people. But, but as far as the Messiah, 
You, verse 5, will not be afraid of terror by night or arrow that flies by day or pestilence that moves by darkness. In other words, none of these things are going to be able to hinder the Messiah's advance for his people and the Messiah's conquering of the evil one. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand. Jesus was invincible. There was no one that could touch him. He would see the recompense of the wicked, and he still will. And it is true, no evil will befall you in the sense that though he was tempted as we are, he is without sin. He certainly suffered under, uh, under, the, under the wrath of God on the cross and for our place, but no plague came near his tent. God did command his angels concerning Jesus. Even in the temptation in the wilderness, we find at the close of it, angels came and ministered to him. And we sang about it tonight. I didn't even plan this. But in the hymn that we sang, How marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. We sang a line that spoke of the angels coming and ministering to Jesus in the garden. God has his angels ministering to all his people, but God has his angels ministering in a peculiar, particular way to his servant, the Messiah. And notice that the Psalm 91 speaks not only of protection, it also speaks of triumph. Verse 13, you will tread, tread, trample upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion, the serpent, you will trample down. The serpent from the beginning understood that as a, as a, declaration by God that the Messiah was going to be untouchable and that in fact the Messiah would be the one who would trample him down and then it makes sense in verse 90 and in Psalm 91 verses 14 through 16 God then in verses 14 through 16 immediately is making a declaration of the Messiah it's like what the father says at Christ's baptism by John the Baptist This is my beloved son in Psalm 91. God is confessing. The father is confessing the son, Messiah, because he has loved me. I will protect him. I will set him securely on high. This is is peculiar language I'm proposing that immediately relates firstly to the Messiah. Now this, this relates to us, but just hold on. That is my proposal. That is, for me, brothers and sisters, that is how I understand this psalm. Is that there's a general statement in verse 1, a declaration by the, the, the psalmist in verse 2. This is, this is Yahweh, my God, and then his confession. He is prophesying how God will protect the Messiah. Don't you think Jesus was known to Satan and the demons? Of course you know that. He was assaulted at every turn. If the devil could have taken him down by sickness, he would have. There was more than enough pestilence to take Jesus out in his childhood. The the mortality rate among infants and young children in the ancient world? He was untouchable. The God was declaring through Psalm 91 that this messianic figure would be triumphant, that God himself would protect him, shadow him, protect him, cause his angels to minister to him and watch over him. And he owned him in a unique and particular way. 
back to Matthew 4. And I, I'm so, I love this passage and preached through it years ago. And uh, a few of you were here. And really, that was, for me, one of the most astonishing uh, preaching experiences in my life. Um, to learn about Jesus, our, the new man. He's identifying with his people there. Jesus, why did the Spirit drive him out into the wilderness? Because that's where, you know, if you're a prophet kind of guy, it's kind of, you know, the prophety thing to do, go into the wilderness. No, no. The Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness because what did his people, Israel, do when they went out of Egypt? They went into the wilderness. He experienced the hunger that his people experienced in the wilderness. He experienced the temptation that his people experienced in the wilderness. And he was faced by our dread enemy, who is Satan himself. And the Spirit led him into the wilderness, ultimately to go toe-to-toe with our arch enemy. And if Satan could take him out, he can take us out. Our salvation, as you know, is in Christ and in Christ alone. He is the new man. He is our king. He, Jesus, is our champion. Jesus must be safe. Jesus must triumph in order for us to triumph. But in, and I don't have time, but just, just a few things I want to point out. It's a remarkable scene when the devil is testing Jesus with Psalm 91. He's, he's saying, um, hey, he brings them up to the wing of the temple. And remember, God had said that he will bear you up on angels' wings. There are so many, there are so many cruelties in Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Uh, just a few here. Let me highlight them for you. Psalm 91 verse 1 speaks of God as a shelter and a shadow. And here is the sun in the wilderness with no shelter and nowhere to hide. Psalm 91 verse 3 says that God will deliver the Messiah from the snare of the trapper. And here is the ultimate trapper and the snares, the devil. You talk about a snare. The devil meets him when he's fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And Jesus was a true man. He is exhausted. He is weak. He is emaciated. I, I, I skip one or two meals and I start to get irritable. Sure, you don't, but uh, I, Jesus has, has not eaten for 40 days. And verse 3 of Psalm 91 says, God will deliver, I'm sorry, verse 10, that no evil will befall you. And here is evil in person of Satan personified. And consider that God had said in Psalm 91, 11, that God will give the angels charge concerning him and they will bear him up in their hands so that he does not strike his foot against a stone. And here is the demonic angel. Satan is a fallen angel, right? He has wings like the angels. He's a spirit being. But it is Jesus, rather the Satan, the demonic angel, the evil angel, who bears Jesus up on his wings. How does Jesus get from the wilderness to the wing of the temple. You ever thought about that? Satan takes him. Satan takes him. The devil, verse 8. Some of you are saying, I'm not sure about that, Pastor. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8. The devil took him to a high mountain 
Verse 4, 5, the devil took him. Imagine the horror and the revulsion of Christ who is holy, but in his emaciated, weak condition, limp and helpless as it were, as a mere man, as he is taken up by this fiend, this devil, and placed on the wing of the temple. And, and he knows Greek, and Jesus knows Greek, and he knows Psalm 91. And, and he's saying, I'm bar- you bury up on a wing, huh? Your foot won't strike a stone. At that moment, when Jesus is standing there emaciated in that weak condition, the most dangerous stone in Jerusalem that his foot could possibly be on is that little stone on the edge of the highest point of the temple where if he just wobbles a little bit, he's going to fall to his death. Satan's mocking him. And he's mocking God's trustworthiness based on Psalm 91. It's amazing. If you are the Son of God. Well, he is the Son of God. Which means that he would triumph in that trial. And Psalm 91 remains true. Jesus believed every line, owned it, and, this, and Satan tempted him to not believe it, but he believed it, and Jesus passed the test. And so every single line of Psalm 91 is true and fulfilled, listen, perfectly and in an unqualified manner in Jesus Christ. You don't have to qualify it at all. He was covered with the Father's wings. He lived his entire life in truth. He never fell for a lie. He was never afraid of terror by night or the arrow that flew by day. Herod tried to take him out, but he couldn't. Why? How do you explain that, God? He wasn't afraid of the destruction that devastates at noon. Many thousands of Citizens fell by Herod or by the Romans. Think of all the babies that died in Bethlehem, thousands, hundreds maybe. Herod was a brutal savage, but he didn't die, not Jesus. He made the Lord his refuge. He went to his father constantly, sought his father. He went to see his father late at night in prayer, early in the morning, And and though the devil met him, no evil did befall Christ. No plague came near his tent. God did command his angels charge concerning him. God did guard the Messiah in all his ways. On their hands they did bear him up. He did not strike his foot against a stone. And he did tread upon the fierce lion, the cobra, and the serpent he trampled down, ultimately at the cross. And the Father loves him, and the Father protects him. And now we're going to get to how this relates to us. And verse 14 of Psalm 91, the Father, because of Christ the Messiah's trust in the Father, the Father, verse 14 of Psalm 91, has set him securely on high. We don't think about the ascension enough. We rightly focus on the death of Christ and the resurrection, but the ascension, the, the, the raising of Christ, but then the, the bringing of Christ up, ascending into heaven to set him securely on high where he is untouchable, seated at the right hand of the Almighty. He is now there. And he calls upon the Father and the Father answers him. 
The father, verse 15, was in with him in his distress, and the father rescued him even from the pit of death. And the father has honored him, what does the New Testament say, and given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name, in every knee shall bow. God has honored him, and with a long life, God says, I will satisfy him. Was Jesus reveal himself to be in Revelation? I am the living one, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. He is immortal, and God has shown him his salvation. Now, how does this relate to us? Well, three, three New Testament passages in closing. Ephesians chapter 2. We love Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and rightly so. By grace uh, you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. But we sometimes skip over Ephesians 2. Verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive, alive together with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Seated us with him. Do you you see it? Psalm 91 is, is, how do you understand Psalm 91 and all these unqualified claims? They were firstly prophesying the successful mission of the Messiah, the protection of the Father, the victory of the Messiah, the exaltation and ascension of the Messiah. But by grace through faith, you and I, this is how God saves us. He joins us by faith in spiritual union to Christ so that he is the head, so that as he is, so are we. And we are seated in the heavenly places with him. So that we are, in that sense, untouchable. This is why Paul is in Romans 8. That's the next passage, this beloved passage that you know well, is rightly quoted in at times of grief more than, than any other. But Paul has such confidence of God's preservation of his people because of what God has done in Christ. It's not just the sheer display of the power of God. You, we should have a wonderful trust in God's protection of us just because of his sheer power. But in the Bible, God's way of protecting us ultimately is in and through Christ. And in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul in verse 33 and following, you love these words, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, the answer is, of course, Satan. He's glad to. But in other words, Paul's saying, well, it's ineffective. He can charge us all the day long if he wants. But because we are in Christ and Christ has atoned for our sins, there is no charge that can stand for God has justified us declared us to be righteous. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who is rather raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. I don't know, but Paul may be reflecting on Psalm 91. He will call upon me, the psalmist says, God says, and he will, and I will answer him. We have a sure intercessor for us. And then Paul goes on to say, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will affliction or turmoil or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, you can add in there pestilence, plague, 
Can any of these things separate us from Christ and the love of Christ? And then he confesses in verse 36. The reality is a believer's experience now can be like we are being put to death all the day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's the experience of Christians throughout the centuries is often they, they, are, they are brutally treated. But, Paul says, in these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels like Satan, fallen angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are trusting in Christ, you are in Christ. You have made God the Almighty your refuge. You are under his wings. His truth is your shield and your bulwark. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So yes, you will likely, many of you get sick. Some of you will have cancer. Other diseases. For now, those things come upon us. We are united with Christ spiritually. These bodies are not yet transformed into his image. So if we go to war, we pray for safety, but the reality is true, good, godly men fall in war. More than a few Christians have lost their lives and evil has fallen upon them. Their home was burned, their business lost because of their confession of Christ. Yes, these things may be true, but because Believers, these believers, and all who confess Christ are united with Christ. It is true that there is no thing that comes into our lives, but that it passes through the feathers, if you will, of our loving, heavenly, tender Father. Amen. Amen. And, and yes, sickness may come, and, and a tragedy may come that breaks our heart, but it cannot move us. It cannot move us because we are in Christ and Christ has triumphed and Christ is seated in the heavenly places and by faith in him, we are seated with him. And one day, I close with this, we will be raised to be with him and there is a day in the kingdom when for us, with Christ, every line of this will be fully realized because Revelation 21 verse 4 tells us that God will wipe away every tear. There will no longer be any mourning, any crying, any pain. So I propose that's a, I hope, a more helpful way to understand Psalm 91. I, I, I personally believe it is, like many other psalms, firstly a messianic psalm but that by our trusting in Christ, and I mean this, brothers and sisters in Christ, young men and women, I would love it if you memorize this psalm and when you are in that time of trial or pain, you read this psalm in the face of the doubts and the fears and the devil who's trying to cast you down because it is true because you are in Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you, our most high God, and what an awesome thing to live in the shadow of the Almighty. We thank you that our, you are our refuge and our fortress. 
and that it is you who are strong towards your people. And we marvel sometimes at the, the heartaches and the fears that you permit your people to pass through. But we thank you that we have one who's gone before us, who, who has suffered as we have, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And that at your right hand we have a, a high priest, a savior, a champion who intercedes for us and that you listen to him. And so that though Satan can tempt us, though Satan can try to strike fear in our hearts, there is nothing and no one who can touch us because we are in Christ. And we thank you in his name. Amen.